Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ella Buchan, Insights and Communications Executive at AMBA and BJ. In this podcast, I spoke to Costas Marquides, who is a professor at London Business School. We spoke about his newly published book, Organising for the New Normal, Prepare Your Company for the Journey of Continuous Disruption. We also spoke about why organisations often fail to have a clear strategy and why this failure affects the work of all employees. We also spoke about how organisations can use change to create opportunity. Here's that conversation. Hello, thank you very much for having me. My name is uh, Kostas Markidis and I'm a professor at London Business School. Uh, I'm originally from Cyprus. I did all my studying in the United States. I got my doctoral degree at Harvard Business School back in uh, 1990, and I joined London Business School in 1990. So I've been a professor at this school now for 31 years. Well, we can have you on the podcast without asking you about your new book. Um, congratulations on that. Um, so Thank you. Amazing for the new normal, prepare your company for the journey of continuous disruption. Yes. More about the book and some of the key themes that you cover. Well, first of all, uh, it's uh, everybody's talking about the new normal these days. So I think it's very important uh, to for me to be specific. What do I mean by the new normal? Uh, and I think the new normal that many organizations face is the fact that uh, uh, disruptions uh, arrive and hit us. Uh, on a continuous basis. You know, in the good old days, we had disruptions and, uh, you know, whenever we face a disruption, we'll respond to it and then spend the next 10, 20, 30 years, uh, you know, enjoying the fruits of our labor before another disruption hit us. Whereas in today's world, uh, you know, you are responding to one disruption and then another one hits you and you turn your attention to the other one. And before you even finish responding to the other one, another one hits you. And, you know, the speed at which disruptions come at your, your way is such that you have to face disruption after disruption and many of many of them simultaneously. And I think this, this new normal, this context of continuous and overlapping disruptions has created a number of unique, I think, challenges for both leaders and organizations. And this is what my book is all about. It's exploring some of these challenges that uh, organizations and leaders have to face now that we didn't have to face, let's say, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I'll be happy to explore with you some of these uh, unique challenges that we now face and what what my book is trying to provide uh, answers to. Is it solely because of the like betterment of technology that there's more disruption or is there other factors that come into it which mean that there's dis- disruption after disruption? I think it's it's a variety of it's a variety of things. It's not just the digital disruption. It's not just technology in my, my mind. Uh, everything is so interrelated. It's difficult to isolate. But uh, for example, we have um, societal changes now, disruptions in terms of the millennial, let's say, the new generation of people that have uh, grown up with a certain uh, mindsets and attitudes towards work that are fundamentally different from. 20, 30 years ago. Obviously, these mindsets and attitudes have developed maybe in response to the technologies and so on. But I will consider the demographic and societal changes as separate from the technology changes. Uh, economic changes, for example, Brexit or, uh, you know, the, the difficulties in Europe right now uh, and so on, the economic difficulties of Europe. 
are they related to technologies? Maybe, but I like to think of them as separate as well. So when I talk about disruptions, I'm not only talking about technology disruptions. And there are many of those, obviously. I mean, artificial intelligence and the digital disruption, virtual reality, synthetic biology. These are all technological disruptions that are affecting us. But over and above those, we have economic disruptions. We've had um, demographic disruptions. We've had geopolitical disruptions, like, for example, the fight uh, or the conflict between the United States and China now and Europe and Russia and so on. So have a variety of disruptions uh, that are hitting us now that may be related to technology, but I like to think that maybe maybe some of them are not entirely related or because of technology. They just happen now. And the interesting thing is that they are happening with uh, great speed now. I think that is the difference, great speed. And before you had one, a chance to respond to one, another one hits you. One disruption that we kind of kind of kind of void right now is COVID. And I wanted to ask you, with people being forced to work from home, do you think that this has helped or hindered innovation in organizations? My my guess is that it has not helped, uh, especially innovation. You know, working from home has helped in other ways. For example, <laughs> you know, people tend to work much more now than before, believe it or not. Uh, um, we think we save time commuting and so on and so forth. But uh, if you actually reflect on how we spend our time, I, I sit in front of uh, my laptop at 8 in the morning and I don't get up until 9 in the evening, which is something I did not do when I was going to my work of employment before. Uh, so productivity has gone up and so on. So there have been benefits associated with working from home. However, when it comes to innovation, I think uh, uh, working from home doesn't help. And the reason for that is because we know that innovation is enhanced uh, when people interact uh, in a you know in, a, in an accidental way it's not it's not when you interact in planned meetings no it's when you run into people and you start talking and you start exchanging ideas and all of a sudden you put one and one together and you have an idea and so on so there's a lot of academic evidence that shows that it's this uh, accidental interaction among human beings that enhances innovation and uh, you know working from home has reduce this kind of interaction. And that is why I'm saying that I suspect that uh, uh, COVID and the, the fact that we now all work from home has not helped with innovation. Can I just put that in context though? I'm not saying that uh, working from home is necessarily bad. Like I said at the beginning, there are certain benefits to working from home. All I'm saying is that there are also certain negatives. And one of these negatives is uh, innovation. I don't think it's good for innovation. And uh, moving forward, I think in a hybrid world, we'll, we'll try to find uh, a balance between you know, the benefits of working from home and the benefits of bringing people together in the office uh, uh, somehow and have the benefits of both worlds, let's say. You have new research coming out which found that more than 2,000 managers in 58 countries aren't clear in the strategic choices of their organizations. Why is it that even on a managerial level, employers do not understand the strategic goals of their companies? Yeah, well, let me tell you, lack of uh, lack of clarity when it comes to strategy is a big, big problem in organizations, okay? Uh, this is what you said, which is every company you talk to, if you talk to the CEO, if you talk to the top people, and you ask them, do you have a strategy, and is it clear? They'll all say, yeah, of course, I have a very clear strategy. 
And then when you do a survey of employees down on the factory floor or uh, mid-level organizations and so on, uh, the majority of them, the majority of them, I'll say 80, 90% of them say, oh, I don't know what the strategy is. And, uh, you know, I, I can go into the reasons why that is the case, but it's a, it's, it, it is a problem in organizations. The problem is most human beings, they do not know the strategic objectives or the strategic choices the organization has made. And I think that creates a series of other problems. Uh, but I'll be happy to spend a little bit more time telling you why we have this lack of clarity, if that's what you want me to talk about. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. One of the biggest problems is the fact that strategy is all about making difficult choices uh, 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 about what the company is going to do and what the company is not going to do. Now, the question is choices about what? And, you know, there are three major choices that an organization needs to make at the strategic level. I call it the who, the what, and the how. The who is which are the customers that I'm going to target and which are the customers I'm not going to target. The what is what I'm going to offer them and what I'm not going to offer them. And the how is, you know, the value chain activities I will undertake to deliver the products to these customers and the value chain activities I will not undertake. In other words, what distribution I'm going to use, what marketing, what inventory, what manufacturing, and so on. Strategy is all about making these difficult choices, what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. Well, guess what? Most organizations fail to make these choices. They don't. It is the biggest strategic mistakes that companies make. They don't make choices. Why? Because of uncertainty. They sit there and they say, for example, oh, should I target customer X or customer Y? And I tell you, there are many good reasons why customer X is a good customer and many good reasons why customer Y is a good customer. So you sit there and you say, well, you know, I can see all these benefits of targeting customer X. And then I see all these benefits of targeting customer Y. Well, which one should I target them? And you know what most companies do? They do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And in the process, they do a disservice to both of them. Because instead of focusing their resources on one or the other, they put half of their resources on one and half of the other on the other. And that's doing them no favors because to really succeed with customer X, you need to focus all of your resources there. You cannot just succeed by putting only 50% of your resources and the same with customer Y. So one of the uncertainty is one of the major reasons why people don't make the choices. They're afraid. They say, what if I choose customer X and then two, three years down the road, it, turn out, it turns out it was the wrong customer choice and I should have chosen customer Y. Oh my God, that would be a big mistake, wouldn't it? So in the face of uncertainty, they don't make choices. Now imagine what happens down in the organization where you say, our strategy is whatever, X, Y, Z, and so on. The employees sitting there saying, look, what choices have we made here? Are we going for X or are we going for Y? And since you cannot communicate that to people, it's not clear to them what choices you have made. That's one reason why strategy is not clear. The other major reason is because, or the other major reasons why people do not make choices is because when you make a choice, you have to say no to something. And people are not good at saying no. They are not good at saying no because when you say no, you upset some people. When you say to your managers, let's say in Latin America, no, we are not going to invest in the Latin American market, they get upset. When you say to your engineers, no, we are not going to invest in that new technology, they get upset. It's the same at home. When you say to your children, no, you cannot have ice cream after dinner 
or no, you cannot stay late uh, tonight, you have to go to bed at nine, children get upset, employees get upset. And, you know, we want to be nice to people because, you know, we don't want them to start crying on us and be upset with us and so on. That's another reason why you don't make choices. So the end of the, at the end of the day is that strategy is all about making choices. We don't make choices for a number of reasons. And then it's not clear to the employees what, they, what, what choices you have made. It's not clear because you haven't made any choices. That, that's one of the major reasons, I think, why strategy is not clear. There are many others, but I think this is the major one. And I think, uh, I hope I've communicated to you why we have this lack of clarity in organizations, which is a disaster, a disaster. When employees do not know what the strong choices or what the strategy choice of their organizations are, they don't know how they can help implement the strategy of the organization. They cannot help contribute, but they don't know how to contribute. Then, you know, we don't get the best out of our employees. So what can organizations do to avoid all this happening? One is make choices. Okay, you have to make choices. This is what leaders do. You know, leaders know if you want everybody to like you, you you cannot be a leader. If you want everybody to like you, you become a clown, not a leader. (laughs) A leader has to make the difficult choices that will upset people. A leader has to make the difficult choices that may turn out to be wrong. You see, that's the issue. Some people... Don't make the choice because they are afraid. What if it turns out to be the wrong choice? Tough. But you have to make that choice. That's what leaders do. So the number one thing that organizations need to do is to make the choices. The number two thing they need to do is how you communicate this choice to people. You know, it's not enough to say to people, even if you've made choices that, hey, I've made this choice. We're going to go with customer A. To be clear to people, you have to tell them not only the choice you have made, but also the alternatives you consider and rejected to make that choice. That's what creates clarity in organizations. It's when you place the choice next to the alternatives you consider. So it's not enough to say to people, I've made the choice that you're gonna target customer X. No, you say, look, we're gonna target customer X and we are not targeting customer Y or Z or PQR. It's when you place the choice next to the alternatives you consider and reject it that makes the choice clear for people, you know, that, ah, I see now you've made a choice. And you see, the, the nice thing is that the alternatives have to be realistic because that, that what makes the choice a choice. For example, if you say, look, I've made the choice that we're going to be number one in the market, people will say, well, what alternative did you consider? Did you sit there and say we could be number one or it could be number 100 and you chose number one? That's not a choice. You see, when you provide people with the alternatives, they can make an independent assessment whether you are being honest. Did you consider credible alternatives that other people may have thought they are the right ones, but you said, no, I'm not going to consider that. I'm going to consider this, the choice that I have made. That's what creates clarity in organization. So I learned two things I'm recommending. Number one, make the choices. Number two, the way you communicate the choices, make sure you tell people not only the choice, but also the alternatives you consider in making that choice. So you just spoke about leaders needing, I'm sorry, organizations needing good leaders. How can business leaders create a sense of urgency while they promote change in organizations? Now, that's another key requirement in today's world, uh, which is different, I think, from what it was before. 
So 20, 30 years ago, like I said, you face a disruption. You you, you had to create a, a sense of urgency uh, to get people uh, re- responding to it, to get people doing something in response to that disruption. Today, you create a sense of urgency for the disruption, but then another one arrives. So you have to create another sense of urgency, and then another one arrives, and, they are, and then you have to create another uh, urgency. So today's requirement is that you cannot have a one-off sense of urgency. You have to create continuous sense of urgency. You know, you have to create a constant sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo so that people are ready to respond to one disruption after another. You see, you see that and the challenge is how do you do this constant sense of urgency as opposed to 30 years ago where it was one-off. Now, we know that uh, scaring people could create a one-off sense of urgency. No question about it. We know that. However, we also know that scaring people will not create the constant sense of urgency. And the example I use in my book is is the evidence we have on human beings who recently had heart operations. And what is the evidence? The evidence is that the doctors tell them after their operations, when you go home, you have to stop smoking, you have to start exercising, you have to eat healthy, otherwise, you're going to have complications from your heart operation and you're going to die. What we find is that people, when they go home, in response to the scare tactic that if you don't change, you're going to die, in response to that, they stop smoking, they stop drinking, they start exercising. But then what happens? Over time, they stop They stop doing all these things. They go back to their old habits. What we know is that 90% of human beings go back to the bad behaviors that got them in trouble within six months of their operations. Now, Mm -hmm. what does that tell us? It tells us that scaring people creates a temporary sense of urgency that leads to change, but it's not sustainable. Within six months, they go back to the old behaviors. They go back to their old habits. And I come back to this requirement. I said, how do you create a sense of urgency that's sustainable? It doesn't, you know, die away after six months. How do you create that? Well, it's not by scaring people. Scare tactics create only short-term sense of urgency. Long-term and sustained sense of urgency, how do you create it? Well, let's look at the 10% of the patients who go back and they change their habits and they keep changing beyond the six months. They don't go back to their Who are these people? Well, they are the people that the doctor gave them a different reason for changing. What do I mean by that? The 90%, the doctor told them, if you don't change, you're going to die soon. That's a scare tactic and it doesn't work. The 10%, you know what the doctor told them? The doctor said, look, yes, if you don't change, you're going to die soon. But that's not the reason why you have to change. The reason you want to change is the following. Do you want to go home and be able to play with your grandchildren for hours without feeling any pain? Do you want to go home and be able to take long walks with your husband or wife in the park? without having to carry an oxygen cylinder and a mask to breathe oxygen from the cylinder every 10 seconds? Do you want to live to the day when you walk your daughter down the aisle to get her married? Do you? Then stop smoking and stop drinking and do all the things I'm asking you to do. You see the difference? To create a a constant sense of urgency in organizations, what you need to do is not to scare them, but not what give them something positive to aim for, not something negative to avoid, 
but something positive to aim for, and more importantly, sell it to them to make it emotional. In other words, sell it to win their hearts in it, not just their minds, their hearts. So my quick answer, Ellen, to your question, how do you create constant urgency in organizations now is by doing two things. Number one, give them something positive to aim for. Number two, sell it to them to win their emotional commitment to this positive. The easy thing is to come up with a positive reason why people need to change. Anybody can do that. The difficult thing is how do you sell this positive reason to people so that they buy into it? That is a challenge, not to come up with a positive, but to get people to buy into this. And I don't have to tell you that is very, very, very difficult. Winning hearts, the heart of people for something is very, very difficult. And people very rarely try to do it. And when they do it, they mess it up. So how does that relate to the COVID-19 situation? Because in this situation, like everyone was scared and everyone kind of knew about it, which is maybe different than other disruptions that organizations have to deal with. Like how did successful organizations turn this crisis into an opportunity? If you look at the academic evidence, everybody tells you when you face a crisis like COVID-19, don't look at it only as a threat, look at it also as an opportunity. Everybody, I can give you as many academic studies as you want, which find this finding. The companies that respond well to disruption, they look at it not only as a threat, but also as an opportunity. And, you know, it's not only companies. At the personal level, we know human beings that respond to personal disruptions well are the ones that look at it not only as a threat, but also as an opportunity. For example, people who do have cancer, some of them do well in responding to cancer, some of them don't. People who face a major disruption, like uh, the death of a loved one, let's say your son or daughter dies. Some people recover well from that uh, disruption, that personal tragedy, some don't. Why? Again, obviously there are many reasons, but one of the major reasons we find is that people need to be able to see something not only as a threat, but also as an opportunity. Remember what the doctors told the 10% that changed their behaviors? They didn't only give them the positive, they told them, look, you have to change because if you don't change, you will die soon. But don't think of it only like that. Think of it in these positive terms. In other words, even the doctors frame the need to change to these patients both as a threat and an opportunity. A lot of evidence that says this. Every CEO that I talk to says to me, yes, of course, this is what I tell my people. But here is a challenge. Here is a challenge. In the middle of all the disruption, in the middle of all this COVID negativity, how do you convince people that it's also an opportunity? It's easy to tell them, hey, it's also an opportunity. But the trick is not to tell people. The trick is to convince them. You see, and this is a challenge, isn't it, Ellen? You know, how do you convince people in the middle of all this negativity? I'm stuck in my home, self-isolating, worried every minute of my life. Would I get the COVID? Would I die? My family get the COVID. How do I survive? Would I lose my job in in the middle of all this disruption? If I lose my job, how do I survive financially with my family? And so I'm immersed in all this negativity. And suddenly my boss shows up and says, yeah, of course, but also look at it as an opportunity. Do I buy into that? Of course not. I look at it and say, yeah, yeah, easy for you to say, but I don't agree with that, that it's an opportunity. And this 
This fact is made even worse by a psychological bias that all human beings have, which is what? We tend to put more cognitive attention and energy on the negative than the positive. What do I mean by that? There are studies which show that for every one negative comment you make to people, you need at least six positive to make up for it. This is, a, this is on average, by the way. Huh? It depends on the negative and it depends on the positive. But on average, one negative comment, you need six positive. The same in families. We found that for every one negative interaction you have with your husband or wife or your girlfriend or boyfriend, for every one negative interaction, you need minimum five positive on average to make up for that negative. It's the fact that human beings, you know, they they put a higher weight on the negative. So this makes our job even more difficult. We are surrounded by all this negative of COVID. We take all this negative and multiply it by five or six to to, to say, oh, my God, these are really, really big negatives. And then somebody shows up and says, and by the way, it's also an opportunity. Think of it in a positive way. How do you make people see something positive when all they see is the negative magnified five or six times? I think the difference is between communicating to people that it's an opportunity and convincing them. How do you convince people? And I think there are many ways you can do it, but I think the biggest is actions. Actions speak louder than words. So for example, when you go into organizations, this what the employees see is all the negative things that companies do to respond to COVID as a threat. What do I mean by that? What you see is organizations, they, they say, oh, my God, oh, my God, COVID-19, you know, we have to fire or make people redundant. We, uh, we have to cut salaries or freeze salaries. We have to freeze recruitment. We have to sell buildings to make up some cash flow. We have to borrow money from the bank. These are all actions that employees see that we are taking. And what are these all these actions? They are all actions that signal to us that we look at disruption as a threat. Think of it. Firing people, freezing salaries, freezing recruitment, uh, borrowing money from the bank, selling buildings. What are these? These are all actions that help us defend against the disruption. So when the CEO comes and says, you must also look at this opportunity, my first reaction is, okay, show me some things you are doing to signal to me that you look at it as an opportunity. For example, if you look at it as an opportunity, I will assume that you go out and say, aha, now that all my competitors are firing their people, it's a great opportunity for me to go and hire really good talent at low prices. Well, show me, are you hiring people right now or are you just firing and making them redundant? Or another way to look at this opportunity is to say, aha, right now, because of all this COVID, all of my competitors are having difficulties. This is a great opportunity to go and buy a couple of them. Show me, are you buying anybody right now in the middle of all this COVID? Or are you just selling and borrowing money from the bank? So my argument is, it's not enough to go and tell people it's an opportunity. Show me with actions that you treat it as an opportunity. You are investing, you are hiring, you are making acquisition, you are uh, executing changes that wouldn't normally execute and so on. And if you show me all these actions you are taking that signal to me that, hey, you are serious when you say we must look at it as an opportunity, then I also may look at it as an opportunity. But the problem you see, Ellen, is what? 
the problem is CEOs come and tell people, oh, it's an opportunity. And all the people see is the actions you take that signal to them that you treat it as a threat, not as an opportunity. So how believable are you? The answer is zero. People don't believe you. They say, they say, yeah, yeah, you say it's an opportunity, but really deep down, what we are seeing here is a big threat. And they behave accordingly, unfortunately. Well, I've got one last question for you. How do you think the business schools should be preparing their students for a business world which is characterized by continuous disruption? I always am fond of saying to people the following. Number one, you know, knowing something is one thing. Doing it is another. And doing it well is a totally different thing. And why do I say this thing? You know, I find a lot of companies out there, a lot of organizations that know what they are supposed to do. They know they have to create a sense of urgency in their people. They know they have to provide psychological safety in their environment to help people thrive in their companies. They know they have to undertake experiments out there, you know, because in today's world, you know, that's the best way to evaluate an idea. They know they have to present disruption as an opportunity to their people. So many people know all these things. There's two problems with it, though. Number one, they don't do anything about it. Very often they don't do anything about it. This is a big problem in organizations. We call it the the knowing doing gap. For example, I know I have to go to the gym every day and exercise, but when do I do it? Never. I know I have to go to the doctor and have a medical checkup every year, but how often do I do it? Never. We know many things, but many times we don't do these things, number one. And secondly, even the few people that try to do these things, they do it the wrong way. For example, I know I'm supposed to create a sense of urgency, but how do I do it? By trying to scare people, by telling them, oh my God, we need to respond to all these disruptions, otherwise you're going to go bankrupt. Well, we know that creating scare fear in people is not the right way to create agency. I, I explained before how, you know, you have to give them something positive to aim for and sell it to them, not scaring them. I know I have to present, uh, you know, a disruption as an opportunity to my people, but the way people do it is the wrong way. They go and tell people instead of showing them through actions that it's an opportunity and so on. And it goes on like this. So the two biggest problems, in my opinion, is that we know what you're supposed to do, but either we don't do them or, or don't do them well. Now, what do business schools do? Business schools spend all their time telling people things they need to know. They tell them, oh, you know, you should do this, you should do that, blah, 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 blah. read this, read that, and so on. And as a result, our students leave the business school knowing a lot of things. However, do they translate that knowledge into action? And secondly, the action they take, is it the right one or do they try to implement that knowledge the wrong way? I think this is where business could come make a difference in them. To go beyond knowledge to helping their students execute that knowledge, overcoming the knowing doing gap and be execute that knowledge the correct way and so on. And how do you do that? Well, you know, it's moving away from delivering content to students to preparing their minds, their mindsets, their attitudes to a world where, you know, A, they continuously question the knowledge they have and saying, is this right? Do I, you know, this thing that I know, the way I'm creating urgency in my organization, is that really right? Or should I 
continuously go out and learn what is the right way and find alternative ways and so on. So develop mindsets and attitudes. This is what business schools ought to be doing, not necessarily delivering knowledge. And this is what I say in my book as well, if I may say so, Ellen. And, you know, in the opening chapter of my book, I say, look, in this book, we're going to do this. I'm going to tell you about these 10 things. And I tell what the 10 things are. But then I say, are these 10 things new to you? If you are really reading the book now and saying, these are the 10 things that this book is going to tell me about, are they 10 things that I don't know about? And I'll be very, very surprised if any business school leader goes and looks at these things and says, you know, I don't know these 10 things. They know them. They know the 10 things that my book is talking about. But many of them don't do it. And more importantly, many of them do it the wrong way. They create urgency the wrong way. They experiment the stupid way. They develop strategy the incorrect way. They communicate disruption to people as an opportunity the wrong way, and so on. And this is what my book is trying to do, to tell them, look, I know you know all this stuff, but there's a difference between knowing and doing it and doing it well. And if you really want to know how to do it well, well, read this book. And hopefully, you know, that will guide them in the right direction of executing their knowledge and executing it well. And this is where business schools ought to be focusing their attention in the future as well. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I hope it was useful, Ellen. I hope it was useful for you and, uh, and your listeners. Thank you so much for Costas for being on the podcast. If you'd like more thought leadership, head to www.associationofmas.com forward slash ambition. And make sure to always listen out for the next Ambition podcast.